This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with former Representative Mike Rogers, who previously served as the chair of the United States Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. They discussed the ongoing national security challenge posed by the People's Republic of China, the ongoing intelligence and cybersecurity threat that China poses, the latest on the Chinese spy balloon, and much more. Congressman Mike Rogers, welcome to the show. It is great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Rob. A thrill to have you. You are the founder of Lead America and the David M. Abshire Chair at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, you're known widely as a former chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and served as a representative from Michigan's 8th District from 2001 to 2015. You also, of course, and I think perhaps evidence in some of the wall hangings behind you or to your left, your right, uh, was a special agent in the FBI from 1989 to 1995. So really an expertise in national security, law enforcement, uh, and of course, uh, an elected official. Great to have you here. Let's just start um, with LEAD. This is the leadership to ensure the American dream was what you chose to do after leaving uh, the U.S. Congress. Uh, just give us a minute on, on on what that organization or entity does. Well, my wife and I, it was it's about two years ago now, and I'm in the private sector doing private sector work. But this was a, a passion of both of ours. Over a cup of coffee, we woke up one morning and looking at each other about two years ago and said, man, does everything feel broken or what? <laughs> uh, I mean, it just didn't feel like anything was working right. Uh, and so we decided that we would start Lead America you can find it at leadamerica.org and start talking and having conversations about people who recently made it. They live their American dream. They're doing their own thing in their own way and doing their own good, which really to me is the definition of the American dream, whatever that is. And we went around the country and started highlighting people's stories and having conversations. And then that spread into, hey, let's, let's start offering real solutions to hard problems in a way that changes the political narrative, Ready? If we're all talking about the three grievance things that we've been talking about for three or four or five years, and that's on the campaign trail, we're not attracting anyone new to the cause of conservatism. And so we decided, let's see if we can't try something new and interesting and different. And it's it was really, the reception around the country really has been spectacular. And just quick follow-up on that, and we'll get to some of the observations about the campaign season that's in front of us and whether people are leading and looking forward or uh, looking backward and, and engaging in the grievance politics. But just in terms of what you've seen as you travel the country and had these conversations, was it what you expected, better or worse? Um, well, I think the refreshing part is, is that I've, you know, I'm, I'm a, as you know, have been worried about the Chinese Communist Party, you know, bef before it was popular. Uh, and have seen and followed what they've been able to do in the last few years. So I talk about, here's the problem. This is our threat. This is your, a threat to the American way of life, our economy, how we buy things, the choices we get to buy. And this is why those conservative principles on fiscal responsibility, about standing tall for defense, uh, about making sure that uh, uh, the government uh, isn't in every aspect of your life, uh, is important. It's not just because those things are important, and they are, but it also has this implication that if we don't get our act together, we're going to lose. We're going to lose our geopolitical standing to China. I don't think that's good for anybody. And what I've found is no other candidate was talking about these things. Hmm. 
so people were genuinely interested and I just kept getting invitation after invitation after invitation uh, to come back and, and have a discussion. Well, no doubt that we've seen over the past four to six years, a realization of the threat posed by China and what it really means to Americans in their daily lives. You were chair of the Intel Committee in the House of Representatives from 2011-2015. And if you think about the national security and foreign policy landscape, then Afghanistan, Iraq, war against terrorism were the dominant streams. And I know where you stood on those uh, wars and, and, and policy challenges and you were a leader on those and recognize their importance. But you also, in parallel and lockstep, as you referenced a moment ago, focused on China. And, and I'm mindful, having been a staffer at the time on the Armed Services Committee, that you identify the challenge posed by Huawei, yeah. which of course is Chinese telecommunications company that was selling their wares, heavily subsidized by a Chinese Communist Party, into American infrastructure. And, and it was your work and your committee, truly, as I recall, that said, hey, we this deserves dedicated attention and focus. Maybe go back and, and take us to what the world looked like in 2011 when you're a chair of an intel committee trying to get the bureaucratic infrastructure, the political leadership, your colleagues in elected office to focus on this. It was challenging, to say the least. When these companies were making huge investments and the Chinese were doing, uh, you know, by the Communist Party, were asking for source code, were, were saying, if you want to be here, you have to have a Chinese Communist Party partner. You have to, and most of these businesses just blindly walked into this. And so when the first report came out on Huawei, uh, companies that you would believe would should be concerned and want to have a conversation were more like, you can't say these kinds of things. Uh, and it was, it's a really interesting to see this thing really turn where people starting to understand what the intentions of the Communist Party of China are, and they're not good. They're not any better than uh, the Soviet Union was, except they've got money and they're maybe a little bit, bit more clever about how they're getting there. Tell me about the moment where you said, wow, this is nefarious. This is of a scale that I didn't appreciate. You know, what, do you remember that aha moment where your kind of eyes got wide and you said, I need to focus on this? So. I think the first part where, you know, being from the business world today, the, the first thing that knocked me in the head was they would go, the, the, the Huawei representatives would come into certain places and say, listen, we're going to build your network. We're going to put up the towers. We'll provide all the engineering support and you don't have to pay $1 for three years, two years. Right. And so we had these small American companies coming in saying, uh, I, I can't do that. I can't compete like that. That's, I can't give stuff away for free and, and exist. And so that was the first one that said, well, you know, I, I, as an old FBI agent, we would say, well, that's a clue, right? <laughs> there's, there's something more going on here. And it wasn't just to get Huawei gear into the market. And remember, it was hardly at all a blip in the late uh, aughts. And then all of a sudden, overnight, because of these tactics, it just became, bam, they went in and were competing with AT&T and these other really Verizon, other big companies, uh, you know, across the, across the world, really. Uh, and the second part was when I started doing some investigation on uh, what they were doing, like, what was the possibility? What could happen with this gear when it's on your network? Right. The technology, what, what, what it could do in terms of putting us at a disadvantage from a security standpoint. 
completely. And it was absolutely designed, they had backdoors built in to take data out, right? So if they have your data, you know, they can they can do a lot with it, but none of it's very good. And so what we learned pretty, that was my other one. Okay, we've had, you know, Houston, we have a problem. We're gonna have to deal with this. So that resulted in us taking a, a classified report and then finding an unclassified version. So we wrote it in an unclassified version, I'm sure you remember, so we could release it and start the conversation. Uh, it was an interesting uh, months, few months afterward, uh, but if you look at where they are today, complete vindication of that report. Oh, no doubt. I don't think anybody would argue of it, whether among partisan lines or industry, government. Give me a sense of how the intelligence community and, and law enforcement responded. You know, the, the sorts of folks you would think who should be aware of this, uh, were they were they aware and just didn't have the means towards publicizing it? Were they kind of frustrated intelligence operators that said, hey, I've been knocking on the door trying to make people aware of it and I can't? Or were they as surprised as, as you were? I think um, a little bit of both. The big writ large intelligence services were, were like, really? Are you sure? Uh, even the FBI was like, I, you know, I don't know, we don't we don't have much on this. So, by the way, out of that report, if you recall, we all together created a unit at the bureau yes. to study these technical, um, uh, you know, espionage tools, basically by Huawei, ZTE, other companies. Uh, they didn't have any of that, so they didn't have those resources dedicated to it. So, um, I was surprised at how many people in the agencies themselves didn't take it seriously up front. Um, and, uh, and you know, now just the weight of the evidence is just unbelievable, including just outright IP theft. <clears throat> My favorite story that came out of all of this, I don't remember, and that, this actually got prosecuted. There was a, a, a phone company that had a device called Tappy, mm. and it was basically a robot <clears throat> that was punching on the phone, you know, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of times. Uh, to, to make the quality and how do we improve the building of these things because we're all going to be pushing those buttons a lot as as consumers. Uh, and apparently they couldn't steal the the documents. They, this Chinese uh, well asset, if you will, couldn't steal the the blueprints. They were having no success there, got frustrated and one day walked in the lab, grabbed the arm, ripped it off and took it with him. I mean, it's so brazen. It's so brazen. He ended up getting caught thankfully, uh, and, and was prosecuted, but tells you how brazen they were. And he yeah. wasn't really a trained intelligence officer. He was somebody recruited by an intelligence officer to get this particular information. And, and by the way, this is happening a thousand times a day all across America and Europe and around, around the world. They're doing it digitally. They have human operations here in the United States. I have never seen an espionage effort at this size and scope ever, including the Soviet Union. This wow, yeah. look, look small and tiny. And, and and you make the reference to the Soviet Union and the Cold War. And of course, given the economic relationship and how commercial technologies are so consequential and relevant to the world of our national security, it, it, it really is scale wise is kind of worlds apart from what you saw during the, the Cold War. Let, let's migrate a little bit and zoom out, uh, to get a sense of how you're looking at the state of the U.S.-China relationship, um, the threat posed by a Chinese Communist Party, and 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 how we're managing it. Uh, the language of the day is 
from the Biden administration is it's not decoupling, not trying to full on separate or separate in areas. We're talking about de-risking, uh, which is uh, different nomenclature. And depending on who you speak to, either means the same thing as decoupling, or maybe it's creating space for cooperation, engagement on climate change, or other ways where you're not competing in the, in, in the, in the way where we're separating and keeping ourselves safe by not, by, by avoiding integration. How do you look at this and what's your, what's your sense of, of, of what we're doing enough to address the threat posed by Chinese communist party? No, we're not. Uh, matter of fact, the, everything is just not lined up. I'll give you a great example. So the administration comes out and says, hey, everybody's got to drive an electric car by 2035. Uh, and by the way, 85% of everything that goes into the components of that electric vehicle are processed in China, right? And so they're trying to do one thing and then absolutely pushing us into Chinese uh, hands and, and leverage further down the road. And why that's a problem in 2010, uh, we, we saw exactly why that's a problem. So there was a, a, a dispute over some uh, the Senekaku Islands. There was a, a Chinese fishing vessel that was encroaching into Japanese waters. Uh, the Coast Guard went out to do it. The, the fishing vessel rammed the Coast Guard vessel, not only once, but twice. Um, and it, you know, created a big brouhaha, as you might This imagine. is in Japan, an island that Japan is part of their sovereign territory that the Chinese claim it for their own, right? Yes, yeah. and they want what's underneath. They want the oil and and fishing and all the stuff that goes with it. Uh, and so they they were pretty aggressive about it. Well, what they did is they stopped exporting certain critical minerals to Japan. You know, missiles, electric vehicles, uh, certain uh, chips couldn't be made, right? And so we have seen that they will use this as a tactic to get what they want diplomatically. And this is why we have to really rally our, our cause here around, listen, we need to understand who they are, what they're trying to accomplish, and that we can't have one policy that says, gosh, we're going to buy more stuff from China. And one policy says we have to really decouple from China uh, or, or, or uh, you know, whatever the president's latest term is. De-risk, that's right. There you go. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, most of the critical minerals that we absolutely need are being processed in China. Even things that we dig out of the ground here, we have to send to China to get processed. Think of that for, for electric cars, for, for missile systems, all, all of these things. And you've just uh, you know given leverage to somebody who has told the world they're going to take our legs out from under us. And that's just one example. They do it. They, they use economic extortion. They went to a Scandinavian country a few years ago and said, guess what? We buy a lot of fish. Matter of fact, we buy, nobody buys more fish than us. If you want us to buy more fish, you have to put in Huawei gear, our conversation about Huawei, right? And so, you know, you're feeling a little pressure and they will use that. They did it to Canada on, on, on some forestry issues. They, they continue to use that economic extortion to push around countries around the world. And that's what I worry about. We're not taking that part seriously. They use diplomacy, they use their economics, they use their military and intelligence, uh, and they are uh, unfortunately gaining some ground and that that's what I, I worry about. Yeah, I'm going to stay on this topic a little bit more and then we'll we'll, we'll move towards Russia and Ukraine given your remit when uh, and and views on broader national security and foreign policy issues and then of course talk about uh, things domestic as well, but you recently were on Fox making a similar point to one you just made. Uh, the trigger, the, the 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 focus of the interview was news that the Chinese had built a listening station, and I think subsequently came out uh, the reports of Chinese military presence on the island of Cuba. 
uh, and and this n- development that we're seeing more of in the past, let's say, year plus, that the Chinese aren't simply a threat in the Indo-Pacific, you know, within a thousand miles of, you know, the mainland China or dealing with Taiwan, which they are, but now it's here in the Western Hemisphere at home with balloons that are flying above our sovereign territory or in the island 100 miles off the coast of Florida. Seems like a Cold War playbook. Uh, how do you view this aggressive and increasing uh, focus on the part of China to be present and f- uh, in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, I think of this. The, the FBI opens up a Chinese espionage case every 10 hours. We never saw that kind of espionage activity. So they're here. They're spying. The, the Cuba in, uh, event, it used to be an old Soviet, uh, you know, they closed it up in 2000 at that time, Russian Federation, uh, spy base. Uh, they used it for electronic communication, interception, those kinds of things. And so they just closed it down. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that they picked this particular spot. I'm sure the Cubans are making good cash on the deal. Uh, but it's what's interesting is just how aggressive they're being. They know that we were going to know about this. It throws off a pretty big signal about what they're trying to do. Uh, and they've been, we've watched them do ports of call in Venezuela. Uh, we're watching the matter of fact, think of this. This is talk about economic and military and our and how we protect the country going in the future. They they uh, Latin America used to be our number one trading partner. Now, guess what it is this year? China. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they are moving out. They're looking at the world as their customer and they don't have friends and they don't need friends. Uh, and so we again, this gets us back to, OK, they're they're clearly increasing their espionage activities here. They're stealing our intellectual property at a breathtaking rate. Uh, they are now moving into our hemisphere in both military uh, and large-scale espionage activities. And the troops, you know, the, the article kept saying, well, there's troops and Chinese troops in Cuba. I'm sure that's just to protect the post. I don't know if they have any big numbers there, but they do need troops at a military base to protect their troops. Yes, absolutely. That did. That is going to happen, I'm convinced, because the Cubans need the money, the cash, uh, and the Chinese have the cash and are willing to set up an operation there. And by the way, the reason that's important, Roger, is all of those communications, so remember, all our naval fleets, our sub-bases, our special forces, all of that on that eastern seaboard now becomes available for their collection, and that's why it's concerning for us. And they have pretty good technology because they stole it from us. No, no, no doubt this is an advantage and a way to put the pressure on us within our hemisphere and, and, and to make us think twice about how much we push in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, great points. You just hit on the economic uh, issue, and, and, of course, it's the great differentiator between the Cold War dealing with the Soviet Union and, and, and China. If you look at the amount of trade between the United States and China, it's grown and continues to grow. The only time in the past six, seven years that we've seen that trade relationship change in a material way, certainly in direction, were two years, second and third year of the Trump administration, where it's stayed south of $600 billion. Sub, the end of the Trump administration, where the, the you know, the kind of the, the trade war, quote unquote, came to an end, and the years of the Biden administration, it's increased and surpassed the heights of the pre-Trump administration. So we as a country, the point I'm trying to convey and get you to comment on, despite our recognition of this threat, despite of the focus on what China is doing, either in the Western Hemisphere or against Taiwan, 
we continue to trade with them robustly. How do you integrate that into your outlook? Um, yeah, yeah, this is part of our problem. It's the golden handcuffs. You know, we got our consumers, uh, you know, uh, it, used to cheap goods coming out of China, right? And, and corporate America is always willing to drive that line down and they're supposed to take care of the shareholders. So this is all something that happens by design. What I think got left off the table is it's a communist country that has ill intent toward the United States. Well, that's the part we lost. And so I do think that we are going to have to have some painful conversations. We may have to pay a little bit more for some things. Mm. Um, I think friendshoring and reshoring is a great opportunity for the United States to get back in the business of manufacturing things again. I mean, I just don't think you can be a great country if you don't build stuff. Uh, and, you know, we have given all that away, or at least a good portion of it. And we remember this conversation kept saying, oh, but we're going to do the high-end stuff. We're going to do the high-end stuff. Well, guess what? Now they're doing high-end stuff and the low-end stuff and the medium stuff. And those are all jobs. It's all powering their economy. Now they're the second largest economy. will likely surpass ours at the current rate in about a decade. And so if you think about all those things and the fact that we've got to have a robust military, we got to kind of get our heads out of our collective backsides if we are going to compete uh, and win this strategic competition. Now, it doesn't have to be fighting with each other, uh, but it might be. If they played by the rules of international norm in uh, international commerce, we wouldn't be even have this conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, don't, they continue not to do it. Uh, they've been taken to the to the uh, WTO many, many times. They've lost many, many times. And you know what they've done? Absolutely nothing. They don't behavior change. doesn't change. Yeah. No. So you know, uh, reshoring, friendshoring, uh, certainly keys to this. At the same time, there's certainly some things that. We would not decouple, de-risk, depending on the parlance you prefer, that are don't pose a national security threat and, and perhaps make it advantageous for us to have uh, reliance on the part of China and, and you know, was it soybeans, for example, or the agricultural trade? Uh, do you view it that way? I mean, a full-scale decoupling, I think most people say, hey, that, that that's not good for us as much as it's not good for the you know Chinese. I completely agree. I, there are things that we can sell, should sell. Matter of fact, uh, I'm a Michigan guy. You know, the Buicks, you know, was survived as a company because we were selling so many Buicks in China. Right. Right. And so trade is good. Uh, trade is a good thing. It solves problems. I'm for that. Uh, the problem comes when they do this high end stuff that has both dual use technologies in it, meaning it could have a military yep. purpose, an intelligence purpose, or a commercial purpose. And so I do think that commerce is important. You know, there used to be a, a, an old joke, and you're in the national security space where, where we'd always say, listen, no nation that has a McDonald's in their capital will ever go to war. Right. Mm -hmm. Remember those days? Uh, well, Russia doesn't have a McDonald's anymore. Uh, note to self. But I would say that, that commerce can be the best diplomat and heal the best wounds. But you have to do it on a level playing field. You can't have these huge government subsidies to take out uh, any economic competition from from U.S. companies. And remember, the Chinese don't. Yes, they are embracing the capitalist part where they get to take the money. They love that part. Uh, but they don't have to make money right away. That's not their interest. Their interest is dominating markets. And they come out with a list every five years of these are the markets we're going to dominate. And they'll subsidize them. They'll, uh, you know, manipulate the currency so that they can, uh, you know, that, that their products are, are more attractive to buyers around the world. My argument is 
just just be a good international player. Let's compete. I'm for that. Let's yeah. compete. And, and certainly the system, the approach of Xi Jinping is 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 not really interested in doing that. And the, and the construct of somehow we're going to make China a responsible stakeholder either by playing by the rules economically, and certainly you know that's going to uh, economic reform leads to political reform. I mean, those are those are things of the past. And and the reign of Xi Jinping. I mean, I think there are very few, if anyone, would still uh, advance that proposition. You mentioned here just a moment ago Russia. Um, and can't have you on the program without getting your take on a remarkable set of events uh, recently took place in Russia. Of course, we're talking about the the, the, the Wagner Group, Prigozhin. Of course, he was part of the effort to try to advance Russia's aggression in Ukraine. He did a bit of a U-turn and decided that actually what he wanted to do was uh, engage in some sort of putsch. Uh, still the stories are coming out, but definitely seeking to replace the leadership of the uh, Russian military and their Ministry of Defense. Uh, not successful. Lukashenko comes in in Belarus, and that's where we have Rogozhin today. But out of all this, we see that the war, Russia's war in Ukraine has not been good for Vladimir Putin. It's created dissension within the ranks. He is distracted by trying to convince his population he's in control. Got to be good for Ukraine to see if they can exploit the opportunity. That's my take. How are you looking at this? Yeah, same. Progozhin is was a uh, remember he was a criminal that got up started this kind of uh, mercenary group that worked at behest of the Russians, and it was it had professional Russian soldiers in it, and it had these uh, mercenaries in it that were pretty loyal to, to him. And he is known as a hothead. So I think, yes, the war wasn't going well. Uh, he was doing a lot of the fighting and a lot of the dying early on. Um, he was very disappointed in the performance of Russian troops uh, in the Donbass region, and, and they were kind of carrying the extra weight. And so I think through that hot-headed Kind of emotional thing. He said, I, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll fix this myself. I'm gonna drive to 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 Moscow and I'm gonna take out the military leadership." Um, I think he realized really quickly uh, that that wasn't gonna go anywhere. I mean, the first, you know, they weren't even che their checkpoints. I guess is the way to call that. They didn't know what was going on. These are Russians and Russian equipment and Russian troops. They're like, "Yeah, yeah if you're going that way, that's you know, right, right on, go on, good luck." Who's gonna step it, in the side in the way of that one without being directed? <laughs> exactly. And then it stopped because the one thing, and we can't compare Russian intelligence services with the Russian uh, military. The Russian intelligence services are very, very good. When you get FSB guys saying, "Listen, this is not going to end well for you." They're the one group I would say, nah, they know how to do this. <laughs> you know, they'll, they will find you. Uh, matter of fact, I'm surprised the guy's still alive today, uh, in, even in Belarus. I mean, I'll unpack that for a second, if you might, because yeah. you, you know, FSB, of course, the successor to the KGB, uh, reports out where they were the ones who were aware of the plan, of, you know, not really surprising that they had plans with inside the Wagner group. And, and so what you're saying is once they, found out it, it was inevitable this would fail because they would they had the capacity and ability to take out Rogozhin and, and anybody else from even coming close to Moscow. I mean is that as kind of what you're what you're putting yes. together? Yes. And there was an operation um and, and so the KGB kind of split into two groups. One the FSB, which would be more of the internal police right. and then SDR, 
which would be like our, our CIA. But the FSB still has a lot of sway in both of those arenas. They did have people in the union. What they were doing is sending messages, because there's got to be at least some level of troops that were in that convoy didn't know what in the heck they were doing, right? I'm just following orders. I'm going there. That's what they told me to do. And they were getting these messages, hey, uh, by the way, don't do this. You'll cause irreparable harm to yourself, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. you're already causing problems to the government. And I think that started slowing things down. The wheels started coming off where some of these soldiers were going, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Uh, and so, you know, that unit was not, I think, at full strength by the time it got where he decided I may, I, I might, this is a bad idea, which was the right decision. And so that apparatus, the state security apparatus of Russia never really went away after the KGB. Uh, it's still there. And, and, the, and what the, I think a lot of people don't understand is that Putin controls 10 deep in every ministry. You know, the people, you know, at every level of that owe their whole life really to mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin. They're not going to go away that soon. Uh, he wasn't going to go down without a fight. Uh, and I, I do think it showed <clears throat> the frustration at the lack of performance on the battlefield by the Russians. Uh, and I mean, it's just, and think of this, 80% of their military is deployed in the uh, in and around the UK, uh, Ukraine conflict. They don't have much left. And the conventional, and, conventional capacity for sure, land, yep. I mean, uh, the last option he's going to have if this thing really goes bad is a, you know, the, that million man mobilization that he's that the parliament keeps talking about, um, you know, to really win the war. You know, now you're in it. That's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, that's a whole. And that that's uh, added risk for, for Vladimir Putin. Two follow ups on that. And then I, I want to close out our conversation by uh, twisting and turning over to national service, another area that you, you, you've written about and thought about. Uh, but let, let's remain in, in Russia just to get your take on this. It is still remarkable to me and, and surprising. I'm curious if you view it the same way that Wagner even got to Rostov in a military command. I mean, you know, they essentially occupied what is a consequential Russian city, consequential not just in terms of size, but in terms of what it, what it meant what it means to the Russian military. Comment on that. And the second is where does this leave Vladimir Putin today? So, you know, as the someone who analyzes and thinks about, you know, looks at intel and then makes kind of uh, assessments, you know, strategically, you know, where where do you assess the strength of Vladimir Putin today in terms of the seat of running Russia? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would look uh, I put too much in the fact that uh, the Wagner Group was able to get into that military command. Remember, they didn't shoot their way in. There wasn't shooting. I, I you know. Remember, there's a lot going on. It's a battlefield. There are this is an active combat situation. Chaos. There's always chaos in this. I think they showed up and then drew their firearms uh, to take this thing over. Uh, and I think that's again right then was when his plan started to, to fall apart. I don't think he thought very well about that. Yeah, but I do think you're right. It showed that Vladimir Putin had this big weakness, and it showed it to the rest of the world. That's what he did not like. Uh, I still think he is going to be able to hold this thing together uh, because of the depth of his ownership of people throughout the government in in the federation. Um, I you know is it? it I, I don't see a big coup. I don't see any of that because he has this security state, this apparatus that's designed to protect the state from the people, right? Which is, uh, you know, what we we fight against here in the United States. Yes. Reason. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think he's probably stronger than we think. I think this thing could go much longer than we anticipate. And by the way, he has some, uh, it's the land of misfit toys supporting him. China, North Korea, 
uh, Iran. They all have different things that they're providing the Russians. Don't forget Venezuela. They're in on this too, right? It's <laughs> our, friends, yeah, our friends in India uh, yeah, are well. buying that oil, right? It was yeah. just cash to him. And yes, he's, t he's selling it at, at uh, subpar market value, but it's cash, right? And so uh, all of these things kind of allow him to continue on. Listen, if the Chinese tomorrow said, we're done, you're getting nothing, and we're not buying nothing, yeah. he's done. Right, he can't sustain it, and so the, again, this is you know it's full circle. I do think the Russian is becoming a bit of a client state to our Chinese Communist Party. No doubt, and that's the no limits relationship, which became famous just before the Winter Olympics in 2022. Although I think if um, Xi Jinping, you know, this is a bit of liability right now, not the partner you want to have. It's you know from threatening to use nuclear weapons to now uh, staring down what was clearly a, a coup attempt. You can't feel good at that somehow this partnership puts the advantage uh, towards China. It doesn't, other than it's baffling us in, our, in the West. Uh, you know, any little dig at us is probably okay by them. As a matter of fact, they have to be just really concerned about this uh, tactical nuclear movement into Belarus, right? Not the most stable government in the world. I mean, they are basically a client state of Russia, uh, but there's been coups and other things over the oh, years. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, 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 for one, and not don't sleep well at night knowing uh, that they would have these tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. It's fascinating. We met get get to Belarus, and you know, you're so interesting talking to you. Some can't get off the foreign policy, national security topics, but to pursue that last one. The fact that Prigozhin, the leader and founder of the, the Wagner Group, is now in Belarus, and Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, coordinated and and facilitated this negotiation. The rationale offered, you know, the press is that. Lukashenko was trying to create some distance between him, that is Belarus, and Vladimir Putin and Russia, not to become a, a dependent client state. And this, this, you know, gives him some leverage and space. But you're right. I mean, this is this is not anything but stable or stabilizing. Yeah, I don't think so. Again, if I were Prigozhin, I'm not sure I'd go by any windows and tall buildings. Those those folks who are anti anti Putin tend to fall down out of those things. There's been a bunch. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that whole story is over. And, you know, Lukashenko, is he can act independent all he wants. It is so intertwined. I mean, his economy is intertwined with Russia. His military is intertwined with Russia. You, you just don't have a lot of room to go there. Uh, so he can pretend all he wants. And I'm, I'm imagine that, that Putin got this done because he wanted it done quickly, and he really didn't want to have his troops shooting Russian troops. Interesting. I think why he did it. I think he said, all right, let's just, I'll deal with that. Let's wrap later. this up. I'll get to him later on. Fascinating. Uh, before we get to our lightning round, I'd love to come back to domestic politics a bit. And of course, elected official experience of, of you know, running every two years in, in Michigan and, and having a great feel, uh, given what you're doing, as we discussed at the outset uh, with, with lead in terms of where the American people are. One of the things that you've spent time focusing on advocating is national service, a national service program, not just military, but just overall uh, bringing young people in particular uh, and and engaging in, in, in civic causes. We're looking at a presidential election in front of us. I'll have uh, what seems to be a competitive, well, I don't know competitive, but lots of people seeking the Republican nomination remains to be seen if everybody could truly compete against President Trump. National service, will that play in this at all? Uh, I don't know. Not, probably not in 2024. Uh, I will say 
I've been getting just a tremendous amount of response from it. I think Americans are ready for something like this. We know something's wrong. I mean, think about it. Uh, our, we're the, the Surgeon General comes out and says we have a, a, a psychology problem in isolation from this next generation of kids. They're isolated from each other. You know, they have their they have their devices, yeah. uh, but they're not out talking and, and making friendships. And I think I saw statistics: it's 20 hours less a month that they interact with with other people. Uh, because of the digital age, and of course the pandemic came through. So you have that weighing against us. We have our academics have never been this poor. We we are we graduated half of high school seniors last year couldn't read at the sixth grade level. Half, hmm. half. Think of that. Uh, and the stress, the mental stress and distress. Ten uh, percent of teenage girls in 2021. Ten percent attempted suicide. Ten percent. So you have isolated, they're kind of giving up on themselves, they're giving up on their country. They've ne we've never experienced as much uh, uh, lack of belief in what makes this country great, number one, and the belief that they're going to do better in the country that they can do better. All of these numbers are staggeringly low, and it will challenge our ability to do just about anything, secure our country, secure our, ec our economy. And so part of my thinking through all of that was, hey, we just don't even know each other anymore, hmm. right? We're isolated. We don't, we only talk to people that agree with us. We don't. And one of the things I learned by being in the military when I went to boot camp is, right, you know, guess, guess what? There's everybody gets thrown in the same pot. Doesn't matter. I don't care what you look like, what you did before, what your religion is. Nobody cares, right? You're doing push-ups like everyone else when the drill sergeant gets you down there in the dirt. That's a great experience. My daughter is uh, served in AmeriCorps. My son is a naval officer. We believe in service in our family. But both of those things were good because it exposes them both to this broader world out there. Didn't mean that changed how they believe. They're both pretty conservative. Uh, and, and it didn't change that. But what it did is it strengthened their position about, oh, okay, we're going to be okay. Uh, you know, yes, I'm allowed to have a conversation where I disagree with somebody without, you know, screaming and yelling and, and uh, you know, throwing something. Uh, and one way we can do that is encouraging this generation to give back to this country. We have well, the one thing that got me here was this, something called reading reclamation. Hmm. There's a program six to 14 weeks can get a student at reading at grade level again, depending on how how far behind you are six to 14 weeks. So this isn't two years or five years, right? It's phonics based. Most of your listeners today will go, oh, of course it is. <laughs> that's how I learned. Right. Uh, but it's you know, that's the secret sauce. Uh, and my argument is, listen, now you have a whole bunch of kids sticking their hand out saying, somebody deserves to pay my student loan that I signed for. Right? <laughs> what? What, that? what? What have you done? Right. And my argument is, all right, we need public service. We need people to say, yeah. I'm going to serve in the military. I'm going to go to AmeriCorps. I'm going to do these. And this is not a big new government program. I don't believe in that. This is through these nonprofits who are doing amazing work. Go get your credit at this nonprofit and everybody can do something. Right, we can get this thing going. So we get these kids out, uh, out behind their screens, their their six inch screens, and their social media, uh, in, engaged in society, engaged in America. I think we become stronger because of this. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be amazing if we got looked on the debate stage at some nominating contest, and this was a conversation, <laughs> Mike Rogers? We we have candidates talking about how can we get 
do something to address these harrowing statistics you just shared, as opposed to just relitigating re uh, events that took place two, four uh, plus years ago. And, and uh, commend you for that and uh, hope you continue evangelizing that we, we get this part of our national conversation. Let's move to our lightning round. Here's where we ask all our guests to give their favorite Reagan book, Reagan uh, quote or speech. You can give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have? So uh, yeah, here's what I did. I uh, and I've read most of his books uh, by most of his most of his authors, uh, including uh, Deaver. I think it was was yeah. my, my my most recent book, which I really like because it gave a personal story mm. of Ronald Reagan. And, and and what it did is for guys like me who just thought he, this guy is you know fantastic. It made me rebelieve that again uh, with a sense of humor and his smarts and how he dealt with people. Uh, but I went and got um, CDs of all of his GE, uh, you know, where he would do the radio. Yeah. Yes. I thought it was fan. So I listened to all of them and it was fantastic. And he wrote all of them. Uh, pretty amazing, I guess. Yeah, Reagan, his own voice, and, and they're they're publishing a book, Reagan, his own hand. And uh, that's a great recommendation. And you're right. He, 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 uh, between the, the radio addresses were from 1975 to 1979 with a short recess when he ran for president in 76 to challenge Ford. I mean, I don't know if any address sticks out in your mind, but it's pretty remarkable, uh, the parallels from what he was talking about to today, right? Oh, completely. I, I will tell you this one story quickly if I can. Yeah, go ahead. I was a young Army officer, uh, you know, brand new second lieutenant. We didn't know, you know, up from down. And a, a group of us, it happened to be, uh, Veterans Day. And so we had the day off, believe it or not. And we were at a training post uh, up in Maryland. And so a group of us said, hey, let's go down to Arlington Cemetery. We'll pay our respects. Uh, you know, we're not that far. And of course, we were from all over the country. So this was a big, big deal for us. We go down, there's this huge line at the amphitheater. And we, again, we're, we're you know, 22 years old, 21 years old, don't know much about nothing. Uh, and we still we say, hey, let's just get in line. We'll go in and we'll, you know, we'll, whoever's speaking must be, that's cool. We'll hear it. We get up there and there's the magnometers and the Secret Service and they're wanting people. And we're like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and the guy's, you know, tickets. And we're like, tickets? Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, we're there. Of course, I have, we have our shaved heads. And just then a Secret Service agent came over and he said, hey, are you guys in the military? And we're, I'm like, oh, man, have we screwed up today? I don't know what this is. Man, <laughs> this is going to be the shortest military history career ever. So he, uh, he takes our IDs. He says, wait here. He goes and comes back. And he said, hey, you guys, uh, did you come here to, to hear the speaker? And we said, uh, we apologize. We don't know who the speaker is. Uh, and he said, well, it's the president of the United States. Uh, and I went, wow. I mean, I was a big Reagan fan. Anyway, I'm like, what? My, my commander in chief? Mm. I get to hear. Commander Chief. So he gets us in. We had to stand in the back. It was amazing. I really thought this was his gift. I thought he was talking to me. I mean, I thought he was, this place was packed. There were tens of thousands of people in this thing or whatever it holds. And I thought this guy is talking to me. He just had that power to connect, even in a big room. I mean, I went home and ironed my uniform about 10 times that night. Amazing. I got to hear my commander in chief, uh, but you know what? The people around him, he inspired the people around him to do things like that. That just, that says a lot about who he was. What a great story. Mike Rogers, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Roger. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.